Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guest today is Corey Shackelford, who's a music attorney based out of Los Angeles, California. Corey has been working exclusively as a music attorney for over 10 years and has represented everyone from video game composers to world famous songwriters. And in this podcast, we talk, of course, about music law, how Corey made the transition into working in video game music law specifically, and why we as audio designers of all sorts should be getting a lawyer, even though it feels scary, and so much more. Now, one term I want to clear up before we get into the episode is Corey and I talk about something known as a PRO, which is a performing rights organization. Essentially, this is an organization that is responsible for making sure that musical artists collect their royalties. And I should mention, even though that Corey is an attorney and we talk about music law, nothing we discuss here in this episode is legal advice. So always be sure to seek counsel from an attorney for your specific situation. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Corey Shackelford. I am so curious how you got into music law, because it is one of the most insanely complex thing, probably other than immigration law that you can get into. It's so there's so many worlds to it. There's so many subsections to it. And that's a path that, you know, not a lot of people would think like, oh, I'm going to do music law exclusively. Maybe they start somewhere else and go into it or they see it in some way, shape or form. But you started in it. So I'm very curious how that kind of impetus came about, why you chose this as the law path for you. There's sort of two paths to it. So I guess, first of all, becoming an attorney, I was going into my last year of college and I was at home with my mom and we were just having a chat and she was like, what are you, you going to do after college? And I honestly hadn't really thought about it much and we were just kind of brainstorming and I sort of came to the conclusion that I like school and there's really nothing pulling me in any direction. So I thought, well, I'll just stay in school. And then going to law school seemed like the most seamless thing thing to step into for me. So I, I literally, during that conversation, called my best friend and was like, hey, man, I'm thinking about going to law school. You should come with me. And on that phone call, he's like, all right, let's do it. So we we both ended up going to the same law school and had a good time and graduated, passed the bar exam. But how I became a music attorney, when I was in law school, I was interning at a medical malpractice law firm and a real estate bankruptcy law firm. And I quickly realized that I'd made a big mistake going to law school because none of those things were interesting to me at all. So I was kind of a little down on myself. And going into my last year, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to graduate. I'm going to be an attorney. Like My life's going to be over. So what's the one thing I've always wanted to do that I, that I never did because I need to get that done now before I become an attorney? And that was being a band and play some shows. So I started just a band for fun with some buddies at, at law school and got my, my best friend to, to manage us and to book us some shows. So we, you know, we played a few shows, recorded a couple songs just for fun. And 
yeah, just had a great time. And it wasn't until then that I realized, oh, you know, I have this love for music. I've, I've always been a huge, huge fan of music. I, I discovered the Beatles when I was 10, started playing guitar shortly thereafter and just writing songs, you know, as a hobby. And so I did that pretty much my whole life. So, so once I was in law school, I was like, okay, I'm going to have this law degree. And, oh, I, I love music. Like, why don't I blend the two? Like, that's something that I, that I think I could be passionate about. So once I had that direction, I graduated from law school and I only looked for jobs in the, in the music business. And fortunately, I found a job at a music publishing company. And yeah, that's how, that's how I became a music attorney. I love it. It's it's such a funny thing, though, that you chose law school, like almost just in a very casual way, calling your best friend and saying, let's do it. And you both shrug and say, all right, let's go into this. But partway through, there's this down moment, right, of you thinking like, ugh. but finding that interest, you kind of revitalize your interest in it, right? Right. Yeah, I I think up until I graduated from law school, I kind of just was like a tumbleweed, you know, I just went wherever the wind was blowing me. So it wasn't until I kind of made the connection because I grew up out in, in Palm Desert by Palm Springs and growing up, I didn't know anyone that worked in the music business. It just wasn't even like a thought in my mind like, and it's never something I considered. So it wasn't until I kind of made that connection in law school that I was like, oh, this is like this is something I could do and this, this is something that excites me. Nice. I love it. And then how did you get into video games specifically? Because even from music, being in a music attorney, getting into video games is a whole sub path in and of itself. Yeah, that was interesting. I um, So I worked at this music publishing company for, for four years. And then I went out on my own. And pretty early on, I'd given a, a composer some advice. And he ended up talking with another composer who was in a little bit of like a legal issue. And so that composer was like, hey, I, I talked to Corey. He gave me some good advice. You should, maybe you should reach out to him. So that composer ended up reaching out to me and I helped him with his, the issue he was in. And then we started working together and he was a video game composer. So that like just sort of opened my eyes to, like this whole new world. And I ended up going to GDC the following year to meet him and then to, you know, just kind of see what this was all about. And I went to a bunch of the game audio meetups and just it was just like such a cool community. You know, having worked in the music business and going to shows or like where other musicians are hanging out, like the vibe was just so different in the game audio space. It seemed like everyone was really just like trying to help each other out. You know, obviously there's always competition, but it didn't seem like anyone was backstabbing anyone or, or trying to get over on someone. So I just met a bunch of people. Uh, everyone was super nice. People that had been in the in the community for a long time were showing me around and introducing me to a bunch of people. And I just left GDC with like a, just a real appreciation for the community. So I went to other conferences and just kind of stayed connected with, with some of the people that I met. It seems like all the same people are at all the same conferences. So it's nice, you know, I can go every couple of years or something and see that see all the same people. So that. That composer just kind of introduced me to the to the video game world. Nice. And we were talking about this kind of before we started recording, but I notice in you know my communities when I'm teaching people, when I'm talking to composers, even if they're if they're a little more advanced, they're still kind of hesitant of talking to a music attorney of of going through that whole process. And when you kind of are talking to these composers and stuff, do you ever tell them, you know, 
it's a good idea to get a attorney at X point. Like, here's the right time to get an attorney. Is it that they come to you too late? Do they come to you too early? What, and for someone who's new, when do you advise them to at least start looking for an attorney to start helping them? Yeah, it's, it's sort of a tough thing to gauge, you know, because I get it. Like, early on in your career, you're doing deals for little to no money. And it's like, am I going to pay an attorney all the money I'm receiving on this project to have them look at it? So, you know, I get where the hesitancy comes from, but just like real quick, like I was telling you earlier, you know, attorneys are, you're hiring them, they're, they're providing you a service. So you can fire them at any time. You can, you can direct them. You can tell them what's important to you, what you want to see reflected in, in an agreement or whatever it is. So there's not reason to be scared of attorneys, but yeah. So when to hire an attorney, I think that the typical response is usually before you sign an agreement, but most of my clients I know ha have signed agreements before they ever reach out to an attorney, but it, it's it's tough to it's tough to say. But if, if you can start a relationship with an attorney early on, and maybe you don't have a ton of money to pay them right now, but, but maybe they can just look over an agreement quickly and just give you some general advice, or maybe you can just ask them specific questions about an agreement and not have to pay them, you know, hours to to review a contract. Like I definitely recommend that because. There's just a lot. If you're a composer, for example, and you're working on a project, if that project is a success and that music becomes valuable, having the right language in that contract could, you know, mean tens of thousands of dollars for you down the road. So sometimes you need to look at it not as how much money is this going to cost me, as opposed to like how much money can I potentially earn over the long run by by getting some solid advice here. But yeah, I, I don't think there's a, a set answer for, for when you should reach out, out to an attorney. I, I definitely recommend it before you're signing contracts. But there's also, you know, there's a ton of great resources and, and forums online to help guide you along the way with other composers who, who have been through it. And, um, you know, they can give you, give you a little bit of direction. If, if you're not quite ready to reach out to an attorney, that might be a good place to start. Nice. And are there any things that you kind of advise composers on that you can do outside of contracts? Like a lot of people, when they think of an attorney, they think, oh, they just look at my contract or write a contract and that's it and nothing else. Are there other things that you do? Like maybe advise them like, oh, maybe put these deal terms in there or think about things this way. Are there other things that attorneys do to add value to people that maybe a lot of new composers aren't thinking about? Yeah. So I, I'm pretty specific to just music. You know, there are other attorneys that do corporate law and stuff. So they might they might recommend that you form an LLC or something like that uh, for various liability or, or tax reasons. But yeah, I mean, there's I, I think just in general for music, there's so much to consider with respect to income streams and other uses of your music. So so yeah, when you are going into a contract that there might be things that aren't in standard templates that might be important to a composer, like you know, maybe the project isn't planning to release a soundtrack, but soundtracks are super important to composers. And so, you know, you might want to think about putting some language in there to give you the right to to release your own soundtrack. Or a lot of companies that composers are dealing with, especially early on in their career, the company might not be super sophisticated with, with music rights. You know, it might be like a game developer who just is making their first game. They have no idea about music. So that might be a good opportunity to say, hey, look, you guys don't know that much about music. Why don't you let me kind of control those rights and release a soundtrack and, or, you know, be able to license these songs and other projects. Most of my work is related to contracts, but, but there's a lot of stuff within the contract that should be addressed that often isn't addressed, especially when it comes to music rights. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. And when it comes to those kind of contracts or kind of deals that people are making, are there any universal red flags, at least in the US, that you see that you tell composers like, don't do anything that is X? Like I see a lot of composers, new new ones, run into an issue where a client refuses to sign a contract and they're like, okay, and they just think it's this totally normal thing. Are there any other red flags that you see? maybe with people who are on the earlier end of their career that you're like, oh, no, no, this is not cool. Don't do this. I can't think of any one thing, but I see a lot with composers where they will negotiate a deal with a producer or developer or whatever to keep their rights in the music. And both parties don't really understand what that means. And then the composer receives a contract and the contract doesn't actually reflect what the parties intended it for it to to reflect you know a lot of times people are just pulling templates off the internet which which i'm not totally opposed to but you know every situation is unique and there there needs to be specific language in a contract to to address the your specific situation so i I see a lot of times composers signing deals that don't actually reflect the terms that they negotiated which is an issue obviously you know in like film and tv one of the big things is performance royalties yeah, that that's always super important to composers. That's like their potential retirement money, or that that might be the, the most income that they receive on the project might be from performance royalties. And you know, a lot of composers assume that they're just going to receive those royalties, but it's important to make sure that there's language in there to say that you are going to be receiving those royalties. A lot of streaming services now are trying to do buyouts of those royalties, so producers might have language in there saying you know, we have the right to grant performance buyouts, should we ever need to or want to. And, you know, I, I would try to put some fences around that to, to make sure that you're, you are going to get performance royalties. You know, you should definitely be receiving performance royalties in major territories. In my opinion, there, there's really no reason that a Netflix or, or whatever streaming service can't pay performance royalties in, in a major territory. And, you know, that's income that composers are expecting and that they've kind of relied upon throughout history. So, you know, I would definitely be careful of the performance language in in composer agreements to the extent you are expecting performance royalties. And even in video games, there's potential for performance royalties now with with some of these like streaming services. So um, that's obviously like for composers, performance royalties, those residual royalties down the road are um, definitely an important thing to be thinking about. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I see exactly what you're mentioning. I've seen many a contract that have kind of maybe subverted the idea of getting any sort of royalties performance or anything or even like trying to trying to get people's writer share and stuff like that. It's a it's a very common thing I'm noticing more and more. And when someone is kind of looking at a deal, maybe they're scared, even if they're more advanced, maybe they're a little intimidated, they have a contract in front of them, maybe they're working with Netflix or something like that. If they're reaching out to someone like you, like a a music attorney who works in this space, do they just email you and say, hey, I need someone to look over my contract? Because even I've seen people get kind of frozen up on the idea of the language they should even use when contacting a lawyer because they don't want to seem stupid or they don't want to seem like, oh, man, I don't want this lawyer to like make fun of me or like tell me I'm an idiot or anything like that. There is then definitely some intimidation there. I know you're a nice guy. You're not an intimidating guy. And every lawyer I've talked to has been totally super sweet. But I still see that intimidation. So is there any specific language they should use? Or is it really just that easy of saying, I need you to look at this. Please help. 
Yeah. So, so when reaching out, definitely don't just like send your contract to an attorney if you, they haven't already engaged you and, and probably don't give them any specific information because you know, there might be a chance that the the attorney works with whoever you are um, doing your deal with. But you know, as far as being scared that attorneys are smarter than you or something, I mean, most of my clients I feel are way smarter than me. You know, and most attorneys, I feel like it, it's funny because I've worked with people and they sort of have this chip on their shoulder that they have to try to prove that they're like smarter than me or or something. And it's like, you're the smart one. You know, you, you're the one like either, you know, being a composer or owning a business. Like, you know, I'm just I'm just an attorney. Like, I just went to law school and passed the bar exam. Like you had a vision and, and you like created something like, you know, that, that to me, that's more impressive than uh, just becoming an, an attorney. At least that's my my take on it. So yeah, definitely don't be like scared to reach out to to an attorney and think like you're gonna sound stupid or something. If you're reaching out to an attorney and you're a potential client, like most attorneys be happy to hear from you and be like, oh, this is maybe a potential relationship that could be fruitful for both of us, like going forward. Like I said, you're hiring the attorney and you're paying them for a service. So you know, if you go to get your car fixed or something, you're not like thinking of. Oh, these people are going to think I'm an idiot because I, you know, well, you might be like, I, I let my oil run out or something, you know, but at the same time, like you're paying them to to fix it. So it's like, it's nothing to be concerned about when reaching out. But yeah, I, so if, if I had an issue, for example, and I was going to reach out to an attorney, I would just say, hey, my name's so-and-so. I, I'm, I'm a composer. I um, am working with this company and they sent me an agreement and I, I would just like to potentially engage you to, to review it? Is there a time that we could set up to talk about how you might be able to help me? And most attorneys are, are willing to have a phone call with you before charging you or anything. And, you know, a lot of times I've had, I've had calls with composers, you know, introductory calls to potentially work on something. And I end up just answering their questions for them. Like on the phone call, they're just kind of basic issues. And so they'll say, they might not need me for that contract because I've, you know, get, given them some direction and they might say, okay, you know, I'll reach out if, if, if I need you or whatever. And that's totally fine. And then maybe down the road when they're doing a bigger project, they, they might reach out and engage me to review that contract. But, but yeah, don't be scared to, to reach out to, to attorneys. Nice. Nice. I think having that script that you just outlined is helpful to people. They'll be able to make, oh, okay, it's just that easy. All right. That's going to be fine. And you've, you're in a unique position where you, you know, aren't a full-time composer and yet you meet tons of full-time composers. You, you've met and talked to so many and I'm noticing if you, um, I'm not a part-time composer. I don't want to <laughs> make you think that I'm a composer. <laughs> so, but you're in a, such a unique position because so many composers and audio people in general are so insular, right? Like every audio person knows every other audio person, right? They're, that's so common, but you're, you're, you have this kind of bird's eye view where you meet so many people as someone who is helping all of them, but not necessarily doing the same thing as them. So from your point of view, I'm wondering if you've seen any like mindsets or through lines of people who are doing really well, and maybe people who aren't doing so well, if you've noticed any like commonalities between groups in, in this space. I think it's similar to just most careers. Like, uh, I feel like the successful ones are the people that kind of stick around and, um, stick through adversity or you know they're committed to this path and you know however long it takes them to get there they stick with it and i, I think in the beginning of most careers you kind of just have to go with the flow and see where things take you and what opportunities are available those are the ones you pursue and then eventually you might do something 
on a project or, you know, in your career, you might work for a certain company or whatever, and it kind of establishes you in that specific genre or field of law or whatever it is. And then you kind of become an expert at that. And then people start to recognize you for that. And they start to reach out to you because you've kind of established yourself as someone who, who does this specific thing. So yeah, I feel like the composers or audio folks who have been around long enough to sort of establish themselves as an authority or a go-to for a specific type of issue or a specific type of product or whatever it is are the successful ones. And I'm trying to think of some some people I've worked with that are quote-unquote unsuccessful or whatever, like what their issues might be. But I think maybe some of the composers or audio people who are just, you know, maybe not genuine and not like, not just being themselves and not, not like establishing relationships just to like establish relationships, but like just trying to establish relationships just for like their own personal gain. Like, like I think that comes off pretty easily. Like people can see through that. You know, I, I think a lot of the successful composers and people that I work with are ones who have established like really solid relationships with people. And they've done the like, the difficult work of building themselves up and building the right relationships and and working on as many projects or working on the right projects that where like, people just come to them now as opposed to like always like having to be out there and searching for a new gig and like always coming off as like I'm trying to get something I'm trying to get a get a job or whatever it is like you know I think you just kind of have to stick with it long enough and put yourself out there and become a an authority or an expert or the go-to for a certain thing. And then people will just start reaching out to you. And yeah, and then, and then having your stuff in order and like being organized. And when people do engage you, they know that you're professional and that, that you're able to get the job done and, you know, always learning and growing and not like getting complacent and, um, and giving people like a good product. Even as as an attorney, I try to do a good job of like being mindful and because I've seen other attorneys work and you know how other attorneys operate. And I've even had clients who have attorneys for other issues and just seeing how some attorneys just seem like they don't really care. And maybe it's because they're overworked and they just don't have time to deal with certain issues or, you know, we're human. We have, they have issues going on at home and they just can't even deal with the, the person on this particular issue or whatever. That's how it comes off. You know, I, I try to be more mindful. And even if it's a composer that's not paying me anything and I'm just giving them some general advice, like, you know, I try to be present and be helpful. And, you know, I think if the creatives who, when they're working with someone, the person they're working with walks away being like, oh man, he like really cared about this. And, you know, I felt like they gave me like they're all, and it wasn't just like, I'm, I'm checking this off the list because this is one project I'm doing, but I have a thousand other projects going on. So, you know, I'll just do what I can on this. You know, I, I think the creatives who really commit to a project and give their all and get, give a good product and have a good relationship with whoever they're working with. It's just like anything in life, you know, any, any relationship, there's a give and take and you want the person to leave thinking, oh, you know, I like, I like being with that person or I like working with that person. Nice. I love it. And you're you're in a headspace now where you're getting more into making products yourself, you know, making your own content, making your own podcast, all that. Can you talk about kind of what inspired you to start doing that and who you're aiming to help with all of that too? Yeah, it's a sort of a, a new venture for me. So obviously I, I have clients that I work with, but like we were talking earlier, you know, there's a lot of composers and creatives who don't feel comfortable reaching out to an attorney 
maybe that they're not making any money yet and can't afford to hire an attorney. So, you know, I feel like there's definitely a need for some assistance for those people. So, yeah, I decided I kind of wanted to put out some products, some legal templates, some legal guides, as well as a podcast to just try to give some advice and tips and perspectives and insights on the music business and contracts and music rights and, and royalty streams, just so music creators can have a little bit more of a, a direction and just more knowledge about how to navigate their careers. And after speaking with a, a bunch of composers at these conferences and you know talking with my clients, it, it seems pretty apparent that a lot of these schools that they go to to get their music degrees don't really prepare them for the music business. You know, they they don't seem to have any understanding of like copyright law or contracts or how um, the various income streams for for music music copyrights. So I was really surprised when I go to these conferences, and I would I, would, I was just curious because two things I noticed when I went to GDC for the first time was like no one had ever talked to an attorney before, and none of them had like any knowledge about copyright or music publishing or, or how, how, how record labels work. So there's definitely a need there, I know. And um, there are other people doing it, I'm sure. But I just wanted to kind of contribute and put out a podcast and create a website where, where people can go to get some resources. So, so yeah, that, that's what I'm working on. I'm hoping to launch it this, uh, this month. It'll be musicrightshub.com. And the podcast will be the Music Rights Podcast. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It'll be something different as opposed to just reading contracts all day. It'll it'll be nice to get in front of a microphone and just share some advice and and hopefully interview some some interesting people that can help answer some questions for music creators. That's really cool. And I think, yeah, that's a resource that I think a lot of people need. And I am definitely one of those people who, you know, went to music school. I didn't get taught much about copyright or PROs or anything like that. I lucked out in that one of my professors was very business oriented and just happened to teach us about it. I think he was going off curriculum, uh, but we just totally lucked out in that. So I got some (laughs) kind of basis in it, but it's not a common thing. It's super not a common thing because I talk to people who are just coming out of college, uh, similar to you. And yeah, they have never talked to an attorney. They don't know anything about like how to sell the music, like, should it be a buyout? Is it non-exclusive? Do it like all these kind of rights. They've never even heard the terms before. So even you sharing that info of like getting it out there is going to be crazy helpful, I think, especially even just hearing the words so they know what they are because no one's exposed to it. It's absolutely crazy. Absolutely no one's exposed to it, but I love it. It makes me super happy to hear that. So I'm curious as we kind of start wrapping up i'm wondering do you have any in in your space or outside it doesn't have to be within law but i'm curious if you have let's say two to three role models who you really look up to it can be again career related or not just people that really inspire you to do whatever it is you're doing or keep you kind of grounded or anything like that in or out of your niche this isn't a role model but there's this guy on a youtube that i uh started watching like a month ago and I kind of binge watched all of his uh, episodes but he's a uh, he's just this guy that travels around the world and goes to like kind of scary places and, and videotapes it and there's just something that kind of opened my eyes about him that he's like he's really just living and like he's really present and 
wherever he goes, he like he leaves a good footprint and he's super super amicable and he's nice to everyone he comes across. And it's not him per se. I wouldn't say he's my role model, but just that attitude, like it made me really want to like go out in the world and, and just be better and like you know not not just be so in my head all the time you know I go into a store and I don't look at anyone and I just get whatever I need to get and get out of there you know just seeing the way he lives and like and maybe it's just for the camera maybe when he's on camera he's different but but just seeing that his his name's Kurt Kaz but uh yeah that just kind of inspired me lately like recently I I just stumbled upon him just kind of made me realize like I, I need to be more present and not be in my head so much especially like during the pandemic you know we have two young girls and my wife and I are both working full time and it's just been really challenging and and I found myself certain certain days just being like like I'm just going to like explode out of my skin cuz like you know we're both on conference calls and the girls are screaming and one's crying or one's trying to hurt the other one and it's just been really challenging and you know it kind of opened my eyes to be like I need to be more present and, and you know more grateful and and try to find like peace and happiness and like in each moment and not wait for something in the future to to make me happy whether it's like you know landing a certain client or like for composers you know landing a certain gig or achieving a certain amount of income like you know I need to be happy now you know I think we've all seen enough examples of people who seem to have it all and then come to find out they're miserable or they end up taking their lives or, or whatever it may be so I think it's pretty apparent that like the money or the things or the accomplishments aren't what are going to make you happy. So you know, I I just come to the realization recently that like I need to find find a way to be happy now and present in the and in the moment. And just watching this guy's video just kind of made me realize like, oh, here's a guy that's doing it, and here's a guy that seems to be present and happy and enjoying life, no matter where wherever he is or whatever he's trying to accomplish. Like he's happy now, and uh, so. Yeah, that was just not a role model, but um, that's just someone that kind of popped in, popped in my head right now when, when you asked me. That's good. I, I really like answers like that because it shows kind of a broader interest than just doing the thing. And you, you hit on that in what you just said. It's not just about you're not only thinking about law 24 seven. There's a there's a common kind of misconception, especially in artistic fields where you think like, oh, I have to only be this one thing for my whole life. And the people I know who are in that are kind of like what you said. <laughs> they're kind of miserable. There's there's a broader kind of scope to this. And we can be inspired from so many different directions. And you're the perfect example of someone who goes around and films themselves in scary places. Nothing to do with what you do. But it still inspires you. It still makes you want to be better. I love love hearing stuff like that. And as a kind of lead in, and you you kind of hit on this already, but what I ask every guest near the end is when you first started, and when you when I say started, it could be anything. It could be when you first started law school. It could be in high school. Basically, anywhere earlier on in your life and career, what was your definition of success, and how has that changed over time, and what is that definition now? Yeah, I think I kind of touched on it a little bit, but um, I think when I first started out, success to me was just becoming a good music attorney and making a de- decent living. And then as I progressed in my career, you know, I started working with other music attorneys and meeting other music attorneys who were in these high level positions that I I thought like I would want one day. And I just kind of saw how they, yeah, I didn't get a vibe from them that they were, were like really happy or that they were felt fulfilled or they were 
enjoying their their job even or the company that, that they worked for. And then on the flip side, I saw some attorneys who had kind of attorneys, clients, uh, you know, even some people I had worked with who were business owners. I saw how they had created like this career that kind of that fits into their lifestyle. Like like they had done the hard work of figuring out what's the like lifestyle I want to live. And, you know, I'll make my career work into that lifestyle. And so to me, like success now is more about like, and which is what I'm trying to do is build a career that fits like the lifestyle I want to live. You know, I have have two young girls and I want to be like really present with them and I want to be instrumental in their upbringing and their education. I'd like to travel around the world with them while they're while they're still young. So now like success to me is like building a career that like fits into my lifestyle as opposed to having a career and trying to figure out time that I can make for my family or, you know, trying to squeeze in two weeks of vacation and, and check out for two weeks or whatever. The successful people to, to me are the people that have like figured out the lifestyle that they want to live and what's important to them. And then they kind of work their career in, into that. I love it. That's a great way of thinking about it. Now that actually, uh, that wraps us up for today. So as a final question, just as a reminder for everybody, can you show where people can find you, your websites, your upcoming podcast, give it all, anything you want to plug? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I haven't been too active on social media just because I've been working in-house for the past four and a half years. But uh, people can find me on social media, Corey Shackleford. I don't know of any other music attorney, Corey Shackleford, so it shouldn't be too difficult to find. And um, yeah, like I said, I'm going to be releasing musicrighttub.com definitely by the time this podcast is released. And I will also have the podcast, the Music Rights Podcast, so people can can find me there and um, hear my latest ramblings and insights and tips. So yeah, I appreciate it, man. It's been a, it's been a pleasure uh, chatting with you and thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, I super appreciate it. I think people are going to get a lot out of this and learn, especially that, okay, this is something I probably should do. And also, it's not that scary to hire an attorney. (laughs) That's a big one, I think. (laughs) That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash soundbizpod sound b-i-z pod and that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects that'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game music and sound thanks so much i'll see you next time And if you're looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to, this podcast is actually a part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. So if you want to check those out, hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.